Hi there, everyone. Just before we start today's show, I wanted to remind you that we're dubbing this month of Bigger Questions as Justice Month. Over four weeks, we're asking big questions about a number of contemporary social justice issues. In the last two weeks, we've met St. Judy Wood and her work as an advocate for asylum seekers. We've also met an undercover investigator with International Justice Mission. And this week, we enter the slums of Kenya with Spur Africa. Now, this show was actually recorded pre-COVID, and hence we were able to gather a live audience. I really hope these shows get you thinking about some of life's biggest questions. So welcome to the third of our Justice Month conversations. This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's Bigger Question, how do we find hope in the slums of Nairobi? We're asking this question today to two people. First, to Susan Ajoki. Susan is based in Nairobi, Kenya, and is the Deputy Director of Spur Africa, a not-for-profit organisation that works to provide education, health and life skills for children and youth living in the poverty-stricken Kibera slums. And she joins me now. Please welcome Susan Ajoki. Then also to Rosalie Louie. Rosalie is from Melbourne and works as an occupational therapist at the Victorian Rehabilitation Centre. She also volunteers as the Australian Managing Director of Spur Africa, raising funds to enable the work of Spur in Kenya. And she joins me now. Please welcome Rosalie Louie. Well, welcome both to Bigger Questions here tonight. Thank you very much. Now, Sue, welcome to Australia. This is your first visit to Australia, isn't it? So how has your time been in Australia so far? It's been very good. Yeah. Uh, uh, I had a very good welcome to Australia. Yeah. Now, also, what are some of the big differences in between Nairobi and Melbourne? One thing that particularly stands out is the uh, just the structure of the road and the way most of the people are very obedient. Right, to the as, road rules. Yeah, to right. the road rules. So <laughs> as, as, soon as, as soon as the traffic lights change, everyone is like, ooh, everyone is there on their brakes and they stop. Yep. Yeah, so I've been trying to keep count of the number of people who actually flaunt traffic rules and... I've been here for two weeks and I've actually just seen two, okay, right. which is the reverse of where I come from. <laughs> if you yeah, count, right. you'll probably be in the millions by right. week two. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes. So that is very good. And um, yeah, so just having, uh, being able to have drinking water straight off the tap is very good. Yeah, that's and not something that you can do very easily in Kenya. No, not very easily in Kenya. No. So yeah, I have to almost like think three times before I actually take water. <laughs> right. Yeah, so it's. So you've seen some people drinking from the taps? Yeah, so even in the airport, I actually saw someone drinking straight from the tap. And I remember standing there for a good 30 seconds and like, uh, then I just, okay, fine, I'll just keep walking. (laughs) Yeah, so yeah, uh, it's actually interesting that people can actually just, if if you're thirsty, you just go to your tap and just get the water and drink it. And you don't think much about it. So that is not something that I would do at home. No, that's a bit different to being It's very different. How about you, Rosalie? Do you like drinking tap water in Melbourne? Yeah, I've drunk it all my life, actually. (laughs) So when she sees me drinking water out of the tap, she gets a bit scared. Right. But it's when I go to Nairobi that I have to remember that you can't drink from the The tap. the tap because yeah. you probably will um, have diarrhea very soon. Right. Yes. Okay, that's something that you only do once, perhaps. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 
Now, poverty and slum life is certainly no laughing matter, and we don't want to trivialise it in any way, but we do like to kick off bigger questions with a couple of smaller questions, just to get us thinking a bit differently. Now, today's big question is finding hope in the slums of Nairobi. So our smaller questions to you are about how much you know about slums of the world. Well, there's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one, globally, approximately how many people live in slums? Is it A, 250,000 people, approximately the population of Geelong? Is it B, 5 million people, approximately the population of Melbourne? Is it C, 25 million people, approximately the population of Australia? Or is it D, 1 billion people, approximately 13% of the world's population? Um, I think it's the last one where you've... How, how many D, it was billion? A, D was a 1 billion, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think it's, it's the, about that. A lot of people in this world live in a slum. Yeah. I, I think um, if we made a good survey of the world, a lot of people would tell you that they live in poverty. Yeah, okay. So what are you going to go with? Are you going to be influenced by that answer there, Sue? I would if you if, if wanted to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to go with D as well? Uh, yeah, probably. So if I quantify the, the whole world, because if, if, if I just take a, a portion of Kenya, then... Yeah, pro- the population is pretty huge. So if we count all the other countries, probably yeah, it may get to that. Yes, it does get to that. The answer is actually D. Approximately 1 billion people live in urban slums. And that figure is actually expected to double to 2 billion by 2030. So slum dwellers represent a quarter of the world's urban population. Hmm. Okay, question two. According to Habitat for Humanity and Wikipedia, which city has Africa's biggest urban slum? Is it A, Cape Town in South Africa? Is it B, Nairobi in Kenya? Is it C, Cairo in Egypt? Or is it D, Lagos in Nigeria? What about you, Rosalie? You want to kick us off? Um, I, I personally think it is Nairobi, but unfortunately sometimes when they count things, they actually don't necessarily count them properly. So um, maybe according to Wikipedia, it could be Cape Town. Because there's a, there's so a slum what are you going to go with? You're going to go with. I'm going to go with Nairobi because Nairobi. that's okay, my Okay, B. What are you going to go with, Sue? Um, Cape Town. Cape Town. Well, the answer actually is B. Nairobi. Oh, there you go. And, and some estimates have put between 700,000 and a million people living in the yeah. Kibera slum, making it the largest urban slum in Africa. Sue and Rosalie, you both passed. Uh, you got one of our two, well, one or two of our smaller questions right. Big round of applause. So, Sue, those numbers are pretty staggering. A billion people living in urban slums in the world and Kibera in Kenya is the largest slum in Africa. What is slum life like? Um, it's hard mm-hmm. and difficult uh, for some people. If we were to just look at the living conditions, and even in this room that we're in right now, very many people share a very small space yep. and it's not out of choice, but because that is all they have... And uh, there's an average of eight people sharing a very small living space, and that is all they have. So uh, the luxury, so bedrooms is more of a luxury mm-hmm. than something that people, that um, other than something that people can have. And uh, even just going to a place where people are having conversations and they're saying, oh, you can look up in my room or just check in my brother's room. Some people do not understand that, right. especially in the area where I come from. So it's very difficult. And uh, personal space is a word that probably just exists in the dictionary for some people. Right. So it's very cramped, very um, tight conditions. What about drinking water? You can't just turn on and get hot water? 
Yeah, so even that, so water is part of the basic need for survival, but unfortunately it's not so for very many people as a too many people do not have access to that, and it's actually a problem. It's causing diseases, it's causing um, health problems. Mm-hmm. Now, it was in response to the challenges of the slum life that meant that you started Spur Africa. So can you take us back to the start? Uh, what made you start helping those in the slums of Nairobi? Uh, I was still part of another organisation that we used to gather and just read the Bible together, share some jokes. I spent a good amount of my time there. Like I left my house at 8am and showed up back at 9pm. Yeah, my mother probably thought I was crazy, but it was a safe space for me. And it kept me um, out of a lot of trouble. There's very many early pregnancies in Kenya. So it was a good place for me to just be with people my age. Uh, Again, when we're having a discussion with my friend, um, he went like, do you know? So he pointed someone out. Do you know that person probably did not have food the last couple of days? And then I remember, again, I felt very guilty for it. I spend a good amount of time with these people, like 11, 12 hours a day. But you didn't know. I didn't know. So when I knew, um, I, so I, I remember asking him, I think we should do something. We were about 19 or 20. We were in college. We didn't have any money. So I was pretty fortunate. I came from a good family. I could have at least three meals a day. So the default that or the thing that came to our mind then was how about we sacrifice one of our meals? Like you can give your lunch, I can give my lunch, then we can bring it and you can share with our friends. So that is the thing that um, we thought was practical to do. Mm-hmm. And we did that for a while and we got also other friends of ours to be involved. Mm-hmm. So we collected green stuff and we gave it out to our friends after some time we realized there was not too much dignity in it because then there's always the same people coming for the food and there's always the same people giving Mm -hmm. and in the long run we're actually not helping them because we are just giving them stuff yeah sometimes they don't even need it so there was a time that we have all this food stuff and then there's no one to take it so again my friend and i ended up eating some of the food because we can't let it go bad. Yeah. Yeah. And then we thought, uh, probably the problem is in empowerment. Yeah. Maybe we need to empower these people. Uh, We had no resources, so we thought, um, well, we can try and and match them. Like if we hear of job opportunities, we can share the, the same with them. But in the long run, maybe give them education then they're able to make better choices even as they grow up. So that Mm. is actually how we got into providing opportunity for uh, children who are not able to go to school. So initially we did favors to schools and then we negotiated to have the children go there and and we didn't get any money for it. Like uh, I was studying finance at the time. So we we trained the teachers a little bit about finance. My friend trained, trained them about leadership. And then we, ha- we had the teachers take children on in school for free. And then we just had to get a few other people help with the books and the uniforms. So that is actually how we got the first children in spa in right. school. So that's when sort of spur began mm-hmm. in some sense. But then there was a, the next step kind of came when Rosalie came along. Was that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what happened there, Rosalie? What happened when you, how did you meet Sue and get involved? 
So I basically finished my uni degree here as an OT and I OT tra- is occupational therapy. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I went to Africa just on sort of like a trip of seeing the world. And on the weekends, I would actually meet friends in Africa. And um, when I was in Kenya, uh, one of my friends knew Patrick, uh, who's the founder of Spur Africa. And he basically took us around. We had um, lots of sightseeing, went to see giraffes and did all the safaris. But but he actually shared his home and his heart for the people in Kibera with us. Mm-hmm. I was I was pretty young then. I was 21. And at the time, I really felt uh, God had really called me to love the people in Kibera. And after that, I came back to Melbourne and basically I shared his vision of empowering the people in Kibera with uh, my community here in Melbourne. And slowly, slowly, uh, we decided to establish Spur Africa Australia to right. support uh, the mission of Spur Africa in Kenya. Yep. Yeah. So what was your reaction then to the slum life? Uh, it was pretty eye-opening for someone who's lived in Melbourne all their life, who's had running water, constant electricity, every need pretty much met living or just being in the slums was just yeah it was actually quite horrid even just the smell of the slum really made me feel um, really heartbroken for them but at the same time I also found so much joy there because every child that I met in the slum or even the workers that we have in Spur they seem to have a lot of hope even though they live in such horrid conditions Mm. yeah so you so the, so the slums were inspired by the work of Spur Africa. I wanted to raise some money for them. But Sue, how did you react when you met Rosalie and she sort of went back thinking she was going to raise some money? What was your reaction to that? Um, so when we first met her, uh, she was very good. She was bubbly. She had, um, we met her with a few of her friends. She took an interest in us, so of course we were happy. But then um, I think my reaction was, yeah, right, you're going to raise some money. Because we had had a few people come and then we'd share and then they'd say, oh, very good initiative. People of Kibera doing something for people of Kibera. I'll probably support you guys. So when Rosie said that, I think my feeling was like, hmm, okay, we'll see. And so when she actually came back and then she did the run and sent the money, I was like, oh, oh, oh. Okay, she did she, it. She's actually serious. She, yeah. She's actually serious. <laughs> so it sounds like a wonderful partnership. Has that been your perspective, Sue? Yeah. I feel like um, the amount of uh, support we have received here has gone... Like, if we hadn't met Rosie, we wouldn't have uh, achieved everything that we have mm-hmm. this far. So the support has been great. Like, I have no words to describe. Um, like, people have given to us, and we do not necessarily know them. Mm. And that is very encouraging to us. And that is why we keep doing what we're doing. Mm. So you mentioned now about the things that you've achieved through the program, etc. So what have you actually achieved? We currently have uh, 91 children at Spa Africa that Spa Africa is supporting. Uh, we have uh, two children who are in university. So first ever in their family to be in universities. And it's just great to see the before and the after pictures of these children and even just having conversations with them and just uh, them coming back to tell us that if it hadn't been for SPA, they wouldn't have been there. It goes a very long way to show that what we are doing is actually impacting lives and is actually giving children an opportunity to make a different turn in their lives. Mm. So in some sense, it does provide hope then for the people, for the children in the slums of Nairobi? So much hope. Mm. 
With the growth of urban slums projected to continue growing, so do you think that you're going to solve poverty at all, Rosalie? I don't think we can ever just have a blanket, we'll solve poverty, but there's lots of little things we can be doing to alleviate some of the burden of poverty on people. So things like we empower children to have an education, we give them good health care, we give them a mentor so they've got someone to look up to in their own life. All these little things help um, them bring them out of poverty, but also to help them have hope. And when they have children, they can also spur it on to the next generation. And mm. that's what we're really trying to do. Yep. Yeah. Uh, questions come in from our text line from our live audience here tonight. In your experience, what's been the most effective method of actually helping the poor of Kibera? Sue, what, what have you seen? Um, so um, at Spa Africa, we do not want to assume that the people living in Kibera cannot do stuff for themselves. So our mission is to engage, to empower, and to educate. So everything we do, we work in partnership with them. So we do not want to provide solutions to their problem. We want to work together to find a solution for everyone in the community. So that is like our approach. We are aware that the numbers are, are huge and probably we may never really reach everyone, but then we are interested in that one drop we can make in the big ocean. Mm, you make a difference. So another question is coming from our text line from our live audience is, what is a good use and a bad use of money to address poverty? From your experience, Sue, what's a good use and a bad use of money? Um, I think that good use is um, first understanding what the problem is and even bearing in mind what the perception or what the community needs. Uh, like um, there's very many problems in Kibera. Uh, we, could, we might as well have decided that let's build houses for everyone in Kibera. That way they will have better housing. But then is that what they really need? Mm. We, may, we may end up with houses that no one really stays in. Uh, we may build a structure that is not acceptable to them because of culture. So uh, I think it is important to understand what is the real need, what will be able to make a greater and a lasting impact. So that is where the good use of money is. Bad use is me assuming that, hey, I got the money, I can fix your problem. So just stand there and watch me do it for mm. you. you. You almost tried to do that, I suppose, didn't you, when you were giving... Um, yeah, yeah. So initially, it, it wasn't quite what they wanted. Yeah, so initially, so, oh, you don't have food. Here's the food. Yeah, so yeah, didn't last very long. Mm -hmm. mm. So, what motivates you to do this work, Rosalie? Um, for me, it's a great way to show my faith and my love for Christ. Um, Jesus is the ultimate hope that we have, and he gives us that love. And so that love in turn has to go to everybody. It isn't just the people who are my family members or those who I work with or in Melbourne, but it really includes the people who are poor who or who have um, can't help themselves in a way. I really believe that Jesus came to die for them and I really want to be that that love to them and my little drop in the ocean is going to visit them, actually going into the slums, actually bringing a group um, of people every year, every January, I try to bring a group with my um, really good friend Grace and we do, we do a clinic, a free clinic at five different um, schools in Kibera and we see about 900 children and in there I really, yeah, I see, I see God at work and I see our community giving back and a community giving back to us too. And it's deeply connected to your faith. Yeah. That's really what drives you. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Sue? What motivates you to, to do this work, to try to make a difference for your people in this Kibera slums? 
I think just being in a position about being able to do something about someone else's problem is a great motivation. It's very easy for someone to get caught up in themselves, like uh, one day when I am this, then I will do this to that other person. But you never really get to that point. Life is not perfect. I will wait for that time when my family problems are fixed, then I can start fixing another person's problem. But after I fix one problem, another problem comes. It was very, it was very easy for my friend and I to just think, uh, when we finish college and then we get a job, then we will save up and we will start the organization. But guess what? Priorities change. We would have finished college, we would have gotten the money and started families and our focus probably would have shifted. The motivation would not have been there. So it's actually about being able to do something and being able to have the courage to actually start now. Because 10 years ago, we didn't know that SPA would be this. And it just took a step of faith of... Um, do this as if we're doing it unto the Lord and he will provide the resources and the strength that we need. Mm. Now, you both mentioned that the Christian faith uh, has provided motivation for you. And there is actually a verse in the Bible which actually contains the word spur. Uh, it's in the New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 24, which says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So how does this shape the vision of Spur Africa? So the other synonym of SPA is actually to encourage. So that is actually the essence of what SPA does, like encourage each other. Someone is stuck. It's not that they can't do it. It's just that they need a little motivation, a little encouragement to help take them to the next level. Mm. So that is what uh, SPA is all about. And that is what we seek to do. Just hold their hand in the time that they're not able to walk on their own. Give them support until they get to that place that they can actually venture out on their own and make something out of their lives. Yeah. Mm. What about you, Rosalie? I think everyone in their lives needs someone to encourage them to say that no matter what happens, you've got you've got someone. For me, it's it's been my mum, it's been my pastors, it's been my friends, and for those who are living in Kibera, all those little children who sometimes live with ten other people in their houses, they need a champion. They need someone to spur them on, and that's pretty much the the ethos of what we do at Spur Africa. We believe that every person, every child needs someone to be there for them. Mm. And we hope that we are for them, but also we really hope that they will be that encouragement to someone else. Mm. The verse here talks about uh, spurring one another towards love and good deeds. So Rosalie, how do you see what you're doing is love? I think everything that we do at Spur is an essence of, of love in a different way. It could be practical in the way of health care, of education, school fees, or it could be a mentor. Um, but also, in a way, we pray for them. We think of them even in times that they might not be thinking that we're thinking of them. And we get a whole group of people here in Melbourne to spur them on as well we mm. when I go back in January and I uh, take the kids out for a camp we tell them about all their sponsors in Melbourne all the um, people in Melbourne are actual people they write to them mm. they write back and they actually receive a practical gift and also they know that they are loved mm. so so has the verse or the reminder to spur one another on helped you when times have been hard I think just knowing um at the back of your mind that you you have someone that you can you can go to you can talk to is 
encouragement enough that life is worth living even when it's really hard and it's really painful and you feel like screaming just knowing that if i reach out to to this person and there's this community looking out for us and there's this other people who are interested in our welfare is very good reason to to actually keep on living despite the challenges that come at us. It can make a big difference, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, the verse immediately preceding this one in Hebrews says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Now, this is speaking about the Christian hope um, being the motivation for love and action. So, Rosalie, what is the Christian hope? For me, the Christian hope is Jesus dying for us. Uh, we are not worthy. We don't deserve the love. We, we're all actually really quite sinful, all of us. But because of Christ and what he did for us on the cross, we're able to live such a great life. We're able to love others. We're able to continue on each day with purpose. Um, I can go to work knowing that I'm making a difference for for someone else. And it's not necessarily just the work that I do in Africa, but it's actually the day-to-day work that I do as an OT, as an Mm. occupational therapist, sometimes just telling my patients or the people who I work with what I do in, in January when I go to Kenya or just going out of our comfort zone sometimes to offer an extra mile or or um, being more friendly or staying back to help someone I think all of that really it really helps and it contributes to my faith mm. and to why I do what I do so this hope uh, as you said before which is connected to the death and resurrection of Jesus mm. uh, that's deeply impacted and shaped you yeah that's actually given me a lot of confidence to do a lot of things I think once upon a time when I was young and went to primary school here I actually felt that I didn't wasn't worth anything I was really shy once upon a time and I felt really awkward actually but after knowing Christ going to um, meet my friends at church and Having that support and the love of Christ, I really felt that I could do all the things that he had planned for me. Mm. And that's what I'm doing with um, Spur Africa and meeting all these people who I never would have met um, if Spur wasn't actually around. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Another question here for you, Sue. It's just come in from our text line from our live audience. Uh, What do you think is the biggest need for people living in Kibera? I think everyone really uh, wants to feel like they belong and that their lives matter. We may be from very different economic sit, uh, uh, situations and our lives are very different, but it, it makes a difference to know that my life actually matters, even though I do not necessarily amount to much right now. So there's another question from our text line from our live audience. Perhaps to you, Rosalie, why is there such hope in God in a place with such poverty? I think for me, God... God lives in sort of the poorest and most marginalised people. It's a topsy-turvy world for how I see it. I actually see my faith grow because I'm there versus sometimes when we're too comfortable and you have everything in the world, you start to take it for granted. And that's why I go back every January. I actually have to physically put myself in their situation for me to be reminded that God. God wants us to care for them, Mm. but also sometimes we don't need that much stuff to be happy. Mm. So Rosalie and Sue, how do we find hope in the slums of Nairobi? For me, at the end of the day, is just to love those around you. And with that love, we can love those in Kenya and Nairobi as well. It is through lots of practical ways, 
but just prayer sometimes, just praying that God will see them where they are and encourage them in their day-to-day lives is enough. Mm. Uh, I think it's being uh, very intentional about what we decide to do. Um, So if it is prayer, then be very intentional. Uh, Go out there, connect with the people, know what the actual needs are, so that when we are praying, we know exactly what we are praying for and where we can then go beyond the prayer. If we can do something, then actually get to the point of actioning our prayer. So then it moves from just being a wish or just a prayer to actually being more tangible and more intentional and connecting with the people. Because sometimes what it takes is not too much. It's just, hey, how are you? And how can I be of help to you? Let me leave you with some of the Bible's reflections on the bigger question. How do we find hope in the slums of Nairobi from Hebrews 10.24? And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guests today, Susan Ajuki and Rosalie Louie. Hi, everyone. Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope it got you thinking. Now, as I mentioned before, today's show was recorded pre-COVID, but if you'd like to get a more recent update of what Spur Africa has been doing, jump onto our Facebook page, where you'll see a Facebook Live interview I did with both Sue and Rosalie just a few days ago. They share how COVID has impacted the work of Spur Africa and how it's affected life in the slums and their work there. So check out our Facebook page for that conversation. As I mentioned, it's Justice Month on Bigger Questions, and to continue the exploration of the big questions of seeking justice in our world today, you might be interested in a special online event, The Edge, hosted by City Bible Forum on September 15th and streamed around Australia called Let Justice Roll Down. The speakers are Indigenous leader Brooke Prentice and historian Dr. John Dixon, and they will be exploring the possibility of seeing justice in our lifetime. You can get more details and register at citybibleforum.org. Finally, if you want to invest in bigger thinking, maybe you could support us on Patreon. We've had a number of new patrons join us recently, and we really appreciate your support. Even for as little as US $1 a podcast, you can help create better dialogue around bigger questions of life. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions. So anyway, thanks again for listening. Please share this show with someone you think might benefit from it, and let's get more people exploring the bigger questions of life. Next week, we conclude Justice Month with a very special interview with Tim Costello, one of Australia's leading advocates for social justice. I look forward to you joining us next week, but in the meantime, remember to keep asking the bigger questions.